You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. So yeah, we're sitting here with uh, Donnie Dust. Just uh, message him on Instagram. We're hanging out now. Um, so I guess, Carlton, do you want to take it? Yeah, I guess uh, this won't really have an episode number to it. This is something that we just kind of did off the cuff, but uh, welcome to the Life and Runes podcast. It's uh, me, your host, Carlton Gover, and David Hal Connor's not with us today. We have a really special guest here today, Donnie Dust, 100% his legal name, and he's a... Uh, He's an, uh, a primitive skills expert. Like you just, right. I mean, sell yourself, man. I can't even <laughs> No, right on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So down and dirty, I, I teach, uh, primitive skills, wilderness self-reliance all throughout the, uh, the great state of Colorado, as well as, uh, the U S Canada and Europe. So, um, my focus is kind of really knowing more and caring less and really allowing the individual person to really harness their number one survival skill or thrival skill, and that's just creativity. Yeah. And that's kind of the, the cornerstone in my philosophy um, in my approach to the outdoors. And through that, you know, uh, people experience a whole new walk of life by, you know, empowering their creative side to really just thrive out in the back country, out in the mountains or in a swamp. Um, whether it's employing some sort of ancient technology or something they developed on their own or just kind of thought up in their own process. So yeah, it's a lifelong journey and a passion for sure. Cool. Uh, how'd you get started in all this? Like, were you like this as a kid or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think like, uh, you know, most outdoorsmen, um, they kind of grew up in the outdoors. That was, uh, their playground. Um, I spent uh, a lifetime fishing, uh, hiking, hunting, doing a lot of different things. Um, and then probably, I would say around 2000, maybe seven, 2008, uh, 2009, there was kind of like this continuation, but I went back to college for one class and I was taking an archeology span class. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I wanted to learn more about how everything kind of came to be, how it all got started. And it really boiled down to the archaeology professor really talking about um, stone tools. Yeah. And that point right there was kind of my wake-up call into saying that's kind of how it all started. I consider flint napping, working stone tools, really to be the first skill. Yeah. Um, and from that, from those stone tools, you can create everything. We've used stone far longer than we've used steel. Right. So um, that really led down a pathway of first getting my hands on some good resources, some good stone. And then uh, putting them to work. And then once I understood how they worked, because how you use a stone knife is completely different compared to how you use a steel knife. So once I understood that dynamic and that relationship, um, I decided to teach myself these skills and really understand them uh, with the intent to thrive with them, ultimately live out in the bush or the backcountry. And my goal was not necessarily to replicate the cultures of ancient times was to ultimately create my own tools based off my needs. And it's funny, without really having a lot of formal education in it, many of my tools seem to resemble a lot of the ancient tools. So it's almost like yeah. it's kind of handed down in certain ways and certain kind of, you know, mental capacities. But uh, yeah, then from there, I just, I, I wanted to formalize it and I wanted to make sure that I could uh, impact the world and give back to the masses and kind of promote that, that creative way of life. Um, that knowing more, caring less, being mm. curious about the world because we need to be continuously curious. That's why you guys do what you do. You are curious about the ancient past and how it impacts our world today. So that's kind of my same sort of approach and philosophy, how I got started. Yeah. Well, that's freaking awesome. <laughs> no worries. Um, so you're saying with the stone tools, like you, when you make the stone tools, they seem to like be similar to modern or stone tools that we would study. Yeah. So do you think that has to do with like humans just have a specific, you know, goal, they need to get this thing to cut that and it kind of just shapes similarly? Or? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if I'm going to process out an elk and I have a nice big um, piece of chert, I want to pull off some real simple flakes, razor sharp flakes that don't really need any sort of uh, pressure flaking or fine tuning. They are in their truest form razor sharp. And that one flake, knowing its cutting capability and how I can hold it, mm -hmm. that really impacts how I remove that flake from that uh, from that spall and then yeah. just start slicing away and then once i gotta get into more of a chop more of a little bit more aggression more force maybe i gotta add a little bit more mass behind the stone give myself a little bit better 
um, you know, hand to stone kind of relationship as far as I don't want it to be sharp cutting my hand and then I can start chopping. Yeah. Same thing with working a fireboard or a bow or you name it. Um, they just kind of all seem, because I've pulled flakes off and go to open something up and I cut my hand and I'm like, I will never do that again. Yeah, yeah. Then I quickly learn to manipulate the stone and, and, and get my results that I want. So I think that's kind of how the, the ancient past did it as well. So Yeah. Well, that's awesome. All right on. Um, so you've appeared on Discovery Channel for... History Channel. History Channel. History Channel, okay. Channel yeah. And which shows were, was that? Uh, so I was on the season six of the TV show Alone. Okay. And then there's a new TV show um, called Alone the Beast, where alone is you're by yourself. Mm-hmm. And then Alone the Beast is you're with three other people and they give you one large dead animal. And that's your only resource to basically thrive for 30 days. Okay. Yeah. How did you get hooked up with the History Channel? Like, how did that come to play? Um, you know, a couple years ago, uh, I decided to go on to social media. Um, <laughs> I didn't really want to, and for years I'd never been on it. And then I received some advice saying you should go on it. Um, you could really, you know, impact and, and, and expose people to a way of life, a way of thinking, and some really cool uh, methods from the past. So I created uh, the Facebook, or not the Facebook, I like to add the the, because it's whatever. But yeah, you know, Instagram, Facebook, all that sort of stuff. And um, from there, it just kind of uh, became popular, a lot of followers. And then somebody from the network uh, contacted me. So we really uh, like your your approach. We like your skills. We like that you're far different than most. Uh, Would you be interested in joining us on these adventures and going on these shows and i said absolutely so if you're listening kids you can still play in the woods as an adult and make a living (laughs) so don't give up on those dreams that's like what is one of the most memorable experiences you had on history channel during one of those shows yeah um i think on the last tv show um alone the beast i think one of the best experiences was really just having a certain level of confidence so being out in the bush giving this one large dead animal, I felt comfortable. I wasn't alarmed. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared because I knew what I had to do. And that dead hog, that beast was going to give me everything I needed. So it was kind of like a culmination of years of practice and studies and applications out in the bush on my own to kind of put it to a test where I knew everything I needed and everything I had was there. And I actually got to to do it in a capacity aside from like influencing my own outcomes. Because, you know, somebody can go camping for a weekend and bring all the things they need to sustain for that weekend. But when someone says, now I'm in control and I'm going to take all those things away from you, just give you this one thing. That's what that test kind of comes into play. So having that test and being able to actually be tested was pretty awesome. And then just good camaraderie between the other uh, folks and camera and everything. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. That's amazing. Is there uh, one environment that you particularly struggle in or find it hard to? Yeah, um, I would say if I had to pick an environment that is a little bit more difficult, um, I think a swamp is a difficult environment. Really? Yes. So as a flint napper, the one thing that doesn't exist in a swamp is stone. Okay. So they put me in the environment where they're like the one resource that I can do a lot with did not exist there wasn't even sand not even sand to to collect dry out and use to grind against um nothing so i was really at a loss but i quickly adapted to the environment and quickly realized um since there's no stone in this environment and there's i know like geologically there's some quartzite veins that run deep underneath the ground but i wasn't gonna be able to get to those right there's no exposure points so i knew the next hardest thing in that terrain was the bones of the hog so even the wood there it's rotten. It's saturated. It's relatively soft. You have some cypress, but do you know how to cut down a tree with no axe? No. Yes. You can burn cut it, right? So you take clay, you wrap it around the trunk, you light a fire underneath the tree, the fire burns the trunk. It doesn't burn the clay and then it falls over. So you understand you can use fire as a tool, but that chopping quick everyday tool, that pocket, that multi-tool was going to be the bones or the cutters of that actual hog. So not having stone was a completely just, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. I knew they were going to do this. And then you adapt, you overcome, you use the bones and use fire. Mm-hmm. And, and you have a film, a film crew with you the entire time. So they're just yeah. sitting there. They're not helping you at all. Nothing. They're yeah, just but, up in your face. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, they're awesome. They're, they're there. Um, they're capturing your entire journey to put it, you know, 30 days into a 42 minute episode. Um, so there's a lot of things that, 
won't be shown. I mean, there's days where I would sit next to a fire with a shell and I would shape my atlatl with it and it would take three days to do it because there's no cutting and I would, you know, burn it to shape initially, but then it was the fine tuning of putting the good spur on there and making sure the handle was right. So when you have time, you use time and the camera crew just follows your journey, captures it all. Every once in a while they might say, Hey, move a little bit to the left. That's the good light. Yeah. And then you look like a rock star because the, <laughs> the light shines and the hair is flowing. So that happens every once in a while, but yeah, there's, there's no real interactions. I mean, you might be able to, well, like, um, yeah, there's, there's always safety that's, you know, at a distance and it's, it's an entire production. So the idea is to capture the journey and it's a very authentic journey. I mean, there, you, there's no sleeping bags, there's no nothing, you know, so I slept in a grass hut I took Spanish moss after removing the mites mm -hmm. and smoking the mites from the Spanish moss. I started to twist it together to make some sort of. Um, kind of like linen or woven materials laid on that and then use linen moss as a, or excuse me, use the um, Spanish moss as a blanket using grasses and palm fronds. Um, even in a swamp, you know, the water table is so high, you build a fire, it dry pushes the water down, fire goes out, sucks it right back up that water. Then you realize all my fires are shorter in, in burn time and the coals don't last as long. So you don't know that going in, but you quickly realize how can I adapt and overcome? So then you take clay, you make giant clay tablets, put those on the ground, start building your fires on top of that clay. There's no water. Huh. You didn't have water to, um, there's no pots to boil water. So we had to dig a, from the swamp's edge, uh, a seep well, the water would go through the ground and then we lined it with clay. And then we would drink from that water. We built rain catches um, to catch rainwater, made, crayfish traps out of vines and uh, different pieces of, of uh, you know, river cane. And, you know, you just, you go out there and you adapt. You'd be surprised how quickly you could adapt if if your mind is open. If you're closed off and say, I'm just gonna, I can't do this, then you're gonna, you know, ultimately fail. But if you go out there and say, all right, the land already has everything I need. Cultures of the past have existed. You know, granted, some of those cultures brought their stone in. I just wanna clarify that, everyone <laughs> hear that? They bring the stone in. Um, so yeah. Everything already exists. You just got to go there, open mind, and uh, the answers will reveal themselves. It's really just kind of really reconnecting with with nature and understanding that it holds the power you need, and it will show you the way. Um, in like a swamp environment, when they put you that, I've always wondered this: like, mm -hmm. is it really difficult to make fire? And like, since it's all wet, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it's very difficult because when the, the moisture in the air keeps everything wet, everything's kind of saturated. And a lot of the woods there, um, they kind of battle the water too. So they don't want to be oversaturated, but there's a level of, of moisture on them. So you have to kind of think like the animals. Mm -hmm. um, where would a raccoon hide? Where would a possum hide? They're going to hide in the most driest spots possible. So yeah. you look for those opportunities, right? Kind of the, the, the environment shows you. And then you can resource that wood that maybe they would climb up inside of a burrow sure. as, a, uh, as a fire making, a friction fire set. And, and out there... Um, you know, you have, you have got all sorts of different ones, but you have cypress, you have your canes, you have some oaks, you have black willow, you have palmetto. Um, so once you experiment with those woods, you find out what's going to work really well and what's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Once you have a good fire set or a good uh, fire kit that's working, you safeguard it. You keep it alive. You make sure that it's protected um, at all costs because... If your fire goes out and you're 20 days into one of these challenges or an adventure, you're deprived of calories, you're hungry, you're tired. Yeah. It's that much harder to make a fire. I but, imagine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, I guess this is going to sound weird, but yeah. I have read that no uh, people in Papua New Guinea use like a like a rope to friction fire. Yeah. Um, is that something you've done before? Or do yeah. you kind of just do like the regular, like rubbing it on a, like a log? So there's a lot of different friction fire methods okay. in a lot of cultures based on the woods and the environments um, kind of dictate certain uh, certain outcomes the more popular one is a handrail friction fire so you have a hearth board and mm -hmm. then a spindle the spindle you manipulate between your hands applying downward pressure and constant rotation and that will uh, create enough friction and through that friction um, and the pressure applied downward it will remove wood from the hearth board mm -hmm. and that hearth board will ultimately create a type of like sawdust and okay. that sawdust will become dark and black it will condense, it will superheat and form a coal. So just like the handrail friction fire set, you have different fire plows where you're pushing fire, you have bow drills, mm -hmm. um, you have fire saws where it's 
more of a song-like mechanism. Um, yeah. And then in like Papua New Guinea, they're using like a, a fire cord yeah. where it's creating that same sort of friction. The cordage isn't um, breaking away or anything. It's just removing that mass, superheating, condensing, and forming that coal. So cool. yeah, to, to really practice a lot of these skills, you have to be well-versed in multiple aspects of fire making and understand how they all kind of play out together. Hey, Devin. Hey, Devin. Hey, Devin. Um, so for the audience, Devin Pettigrew, a PhD student here at Boulder, has joined us. Um, Devin does experimental tech, and this is his first time meeting Donnie. And uh, yeah, we're super excited to have him here. Um, we were just talking about his time uh, on the show Alone and Alone the Beast and different fire making techniques. Um, and one of Donnie's, uh, when we asked him, uh, the most uh, troublesome environment he's been in. He said the swamp because there was a lack of stone tools available. I can Talk- totally see that. Yeah. So, I mean, is there anything you like? I mean, Donnie has brought a bunch of his uh, tools here um, cool. that we thought that you would definitely appreciate. We were telling him a bit about your research, and later he wants to see your your toys and goodies downstairs. All right. Yeah. Thanks. I didn't realize how much of a complete wuss I was. So. <laughs> you grow your planet, my friend. So would you, do you have like a question? I mean, you're more versed in the experimental stuff than we are in terms of different uh, techniques and, uh, you know, yeah, ancient tech. I think what's uh, interesting to me is hunting with stone tools. Absolutely. Um, cause I can do carcass experiments and see how they penetrate and the different weapons work. Yeah. What you don't get from that is cause you have to kill the animal humanely before you run the experiment. Sure. And then you had to like consume it afterwards, try and make as much use of that as possible, but you don't get to see actually how does it form in a hunting situation where mm-hmm. it, you know, you're trying to kill the animal as quickly as possible. Yeah. Well, so you have any experience with that? Yeah. So I hunt, um, with an atlatl primitive bow on hogs, deer, and this is based on state by state regulation, regulation, private property, public lands. Um, and I think, you know, a hog is a good, uh, a good example of one of those things. So unlike modern hunters, we try to have an ethical kill. You know, hunter gatherers are not ethical. There might've been a spiritual context in how they took their game and the importance of it. But a stone point is designed to create trauma, mass trauma, mass bleed out as it enters the flesh and that animal starts to run away. It incises and causes that bleed out. That's the brutality of it. But that's also the beauty of it. That's a, that's a technology that will take a four bladed razor point, put it through an animal, shoot it through the animal. And then that deer will run off for three and a half miles. But if I take a stone point, put it through the gut of a hog because I can't get through his shield his intestines rip out. He bleeds to death in like 50 feet. His intestines are on the ground. I've got a meal. So there's kind of the the reverse. We don't have to be ethical as hunter-gatherers. Today we have to. Um, so when you employ stone tools or you look at some of the, the hunting methodologies of the past and you apply them in today, they just don't really mirror up. So so much. So you're telling, you, you run a hog hunting kind of, I wouldn't even just a, a hunting trip down in texas correct so could you explain what that hog shield is and why you you go for the guts in that, in that case? absolutely yeah so um so the, the you know back it up there I, I offer a variety of courses one of them is a uh, two-day atlatl build and then a two-day hog hunt and the idea is to get eight to ten people form into two groups to hunting parties with their atlatls and push and drive hogs flush hogs to another party and then take those hogs out with atlatls in, in, a, in a group effort um, now, most of your big hogs, they have what's called a shield and it's a layer of fat that kind of protects their neck and it goes down around their shoulders. And sometimes that shield will even trickle down into around their ribs. So that is, uh, maybe an evolutionary thing after they've been fighting and using their razors and their, their stuff. That's how they protect themselves. Yeah, it's got a pretty small, uh, thoracic cavity for the target that you can actually hit. Exactly. The- like what would you typically aim at for on a deer, elk, or something? Is the thoracic, the area that contains the lungs and the heart, and then right behind the diaphragm, you have uh, basically what we would call like the gut area. Yeah, that you typically wouldn't want to hit if you if you do hit right behind it, um, you can still kill an animal fairly quickly if you have an effective point. And it sounds like you're saying like stone points are are very effective. I've actually Absolutely. read a few ethnographic accounts where people are saying. After they started getting trade points, like metal points, 
Hmm. Uh, they were more durable, but they weren't more effective at dropping a, an animal quickly, Absolutely. which is, is really interesting. And I was just saying, you know, thinking about how little has been done to fully understand that. No, for sure. And, you know, the, the idea of hunting a hog is it's really knowing your, your, your prey. So if you're hunting a hog and you're going to try and go for a shot, you have to be able to, to put the animal down. Yeah. Going for an elk or a mule deer or even a whitetail, yeah, you're going behind the shoulder blade aiming for the yeah. thoracic cavity. So there's just that modern, a lot of modern hunters, they, they'll they have an overpowered bow. They'll have an 80-pound yep. bow, and they'll shoot it at 20 yards, and the arrow goes through. Yep. And that's really just kind of overdoing it. And that animal can, I mean, razor sharp, close out. It can close and run. And I've heard hunters say, I shot a mule deer once and tracked a blood trail for like five hours. And I think to myself, I'm like, that's a pretty bad shot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, the great thing about yep. stone points, it is, it is trauma. It is designed to slice and dice and create that, um, yeah. that opening. And that's the science. My person, I mean, I'm not a like, like you gents, but having stuck many a points in the side of animal, that's what it does. I mean, without it, that lateral four shaft is not going to go through the side of a mule deer. Yeah. It's going to stick. It's going to pop. It's going to drop. And as it runs away, it just creates a cavity of chaos. And I, I didn't know that before I started doing archaeology and reading about it in like a thesis based on hunting. And I didn't realize you would track something for days after it was, or hours after it was bleeding out or, you know, quickly. But I just think that's insane. The hunting market has adopted a new kind of point. They call them these like toxic points and they're almost circular razors. So when it makes entry, it slices and dices and creates a, a decent sized cavity. The same size cavity that a nice, you know, yep. atlatl, you know, with a good foreshaft with a nice point would do. A dart point. Exactly. Yep. They're big. Even, yeah, it's perfect. So they, they definitely create a lot of trauma. Yeah, that's very uh, interesting. From what I've seen, uh, darts don't penetrate as deeply, but they, as an arrow, which mm -hmm. has, is smaller, has a lot more kinetic energy, sure. or it can have. Darts can also have a lot of kinetic energy, but they they have that larger cutting head and they just create yeah. a lot of trauma when they hit. Absolutely. And I find that some of the darts and some of the four shafts people create, they create kind of a, a negative effect. They'll have a very nice point and they'll have a very bulbous connection point whether it's wrapped yes. with sinew or whether it's wrapped with um some sort of hide glue or even some sort of pitch and then it really creates a a, a stopping point yeah it has to be almost a very seamless transition and there's like certain styles of points i like to use because i can achieve that initial small entry gain gap through the ribs get yep. to the cavities that i need to and go from there yeah that's um that's come up a lot in carcass experiments is if you don't have and this is the case, uh, a lot of people who like make these ex or do these experiments aren't as versed in designing the projectile in the first place. Um, if you have those kind of bulky transitions, yeah. that's, it's going to stop it's almost <laughs> every time. Yeah, you hit one rib, it's already lost that kinetic force. Yeah. As soon as you, it's, yeah, for sure. If you have a short foreshaft, that's as deep as it's going to go. If you have like a, a shoulder at the socket. What's interesting is when uh, some cultures... Uh, did that on purpose like mm. you in the southwestern u.s is the case where they actually seem to have purposely had a four shaft that's kind of loosely fit into the main shaft of the dart if you don't do it just right it actually falls out in flight mm. which is really annoying yeah <laughs> usually your four shaft gets lost but then they had this shoulder at the at the socket so they didn't actually want it to penetrate farther than the four shaft and since it's such a loose connection there it punches in, the main shaft stops, and as soon as that animal starts running, the main shaft drops. drops. Perfect. And you can get it. And uh, there are these really interesting cases of independent development of that with arrows as well. Right on. Yeah. In uh, Africa, this, that's how the San Bushman hunt. Mm. Their arrows are designed the same way. Uh, Aleutian Islanders had poison foreshafts that fit into dart main shafts yeah. the same way. So yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I think one thing that really <clears throat> complements that idea is that some of the things we call bird points. Um, yeah. I would never, I would never hunt a bird with a bird right. point. <laughs> I would cover it with poison or just make entry and allow the dart to, or that, uh, that point to do its work. Yeah. One, one type of foreshaft. I don't know. Maybe you guys can speak to this. Um, I created a, what I call an overshaft with a wadding. So I'll take bison hair 
and I'll have my four shaft cavity and I'll wad it with bison hair and it sticks out the sides and I'll stick my four shaft into it. So then when it makes impact, I won't blow out my four shaft. It won't pressure fit. And then it's also nice and loose. So it sticks in tight. It makes hard entry, but then it also just releases like it's, I have, I have some photos. It's a cool trick. Show you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never just, heard of that. Yeah. I, I don't, it was just, like I said, some of my stuff after doing it, you're like, God, these things are not coming out because yeah. if you throw it 75 yards and that kinetic energy hits, yeah, it's just like, it just heats itself up and it locks it, itself it in. It drives the four shaft really hard right. in the main shaft. And you yeah. have, you have this binding around the socket so that the, the socket that you've drilled into the end of the main shaft actually gives a little bit. So yeah. when you fit in the four shaft, it's, it has a snug fit, but if it gets jammed in there, man, it's yeah. like, you hit a shoulder blade. Yeah. That thing's going to blow up. And that's not good. If your point's broken, you're like, <laughs> crap, there's still bison running around. I exactly. need to fit in a new four shaft. Exactly. So yeah, cool. I, I have some photos. I'd like can to see that. Give you a perspective of what it looks like. Um, back to, you just mentioned bird points. Which yeah. Are, um, have you guys talked about bird points? No. no. Okay. So, uh, it's interesting that in North America we have in later times when people have adopted the bow, these tiny little projectile points. Yeah. Don't be getting your pinky. And like yeah, it's like as big as your, that your fingernail on your, on your pinky. Um, and so collectors for a long time have called those bird points because they thought that's what they were for. Like how, how, what else would you hunt with that? But obviously if you, if you're going to kill a bird, you're going to, and it's like a small bird that you're not uh, trying to punch through and penetrate into the, the body cavity. You're going to use like a blunt mm-hmm. tip on your projectile to just knock it, kind of knock it unconscious or, or kill Crush it outright like that. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, um, that's not what they were hunting with. They're hunting deer and things yeah, like that absolutely. with these tiny little points. Yeah. Most like most of the, um, the, like the whole, I think bird point is a very easy thing because it's just an easy way to explain the size and the relation to the actual yeah. target. But yeah. like I hunt with like, you heard of like Mookie marbles out in Utah. They're these naturally geoformed marbles oh, yeah. and I will glue mm-hmm. it right to the front using pine pitch and all this oh. is just blunt force trauma. And if you take, I mean, you can throw a rock at a, at a quail or even like some ptarmigan and kill it, but you hit it with the mookie and it just, it just explodes the heart, which I mean, you want to eat that. That's good. But you know, you're going to wind up getting a kill without causing mass trauma to the entire bird. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool, but yeah, the bird points definitely for deer. Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. It's yeah. funny to, I always get a kick when people say that's a bird point. I'm like, well, uh, maybe, maybe like an emu or something like that. Possibly, <laughs> right. but, you know. Maybe for a turkey. I yeah. Know. I don't even know that. Turkeys are uh, pretty resilient birds. I hear yeah. that uh, hunting them with bow is very awesome. challenging. It is. Yeah. I can tell you, uh, I love hunting turkey, the fall time, the wintertime turkeys. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you know, if you're using a shotgun, you just aim for the head. If yeah. you're using a bow, you got to aim for some sort of vitals because it will keep moving and you got to run out there and grab it by the neck yeah. and start cranking away. Um, but yeah, so I have, I've, I don't know if this is a style point. I, I should have brought it, but it's actually a whale's tail coming out. So it's a point that if you were to take a whale's tail for those listening and point it at the actual yeah. uh, critter, um, it has two razor sharp edges. So we'll hopefully scoop a section of the neck and and cut it and at least stop its movement. So then you can. So it's like a, a crescent shaped <laughs> yeah. stone yeah. tip. Exactly. Almost like those tattoos. It's a crescent with a, with a long yeah. stem that you just have to. Have you. Yeah. I was going to say, have you heard of the, uh, the archeological and ethnographic examples of those? No. Cause there's a lot. Is there? Yeah. Um, hmm. not just in the Americas he's talking about in the channel islands, they've okay. made those. And, uh, and there have been a lot of theories as to what they were used for. Okay. But, uh, you also see them in the old world and starting in Africa, potentially as far back as 70,000 years ago. Wow. And wow. that they seem to have been tipped. Well, you have these transverse arrowheads. Yeah, I love those. That's just like tips. Those are the best. Yeah, it's just straight oh. a straight blade, straight across, totally uh, perpendicular to the the shaft of the arrow. Yeah. That and it's like, like a trapezoid. You look at it, and you're like, that doesn't look like oh, ruthless an arrow that would work. But 
And yet, oh my god, oh yeah, they've been found lodged in the vertebra of red deer in Europe. So they were using the hunt big game. Yeah, I'll pull it up. Um, you tested one on the goat. I did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I tested two on the goat. Right on. Um, so those appear pretty early, and uh, there are hafted examples of those from Egyptian tombs. Okay. But there are these these funky um, what we call microliths usually, yeah. or backed backed bladelets. You okay. often hear them called as well, where that what they're u- utilizing is the the natural edge of the flake. You know, mm-hmm. you drive it off and you get these these really sharp edges, and then you retouch it, and that's when where they've retouched on these is actually the backed portion. That's where you haft it up against the shaft. Gotcha. And some of these things from uh, Southern Africa. Whoa, those are cool. Have <laughs> to show those on your. Yeah, um, I'll get a bunch more for you. Some of those from Southern Africa. The the best guess is that their their projectile points for either at level darts or arrows, and that's how they were hafted. Yeah, it's I like mean, that, so. I I love the the simple hafting mechanisms because any yeah. flake removed off a spall, even if it's like a microlith, is just it's gnarly at its finest. Super sharp. Oh, you put that anywhere in your own body, you're gonna. Yeah, wind up feeling it. So there's a transverse right there. Yeah, yeah, there you standard go. Standard transverse. Yep. And those those will do damage. And a bone point, or yeah, just a. So I like to use bone sometimes for bird to small game because they are durable, but they're also yeah. not going to destroy everything. And that's kind of the that's wadding. So those are over shafts. Okay. So it's actually. Uh, a hollowed out piece of wood mm-hmm. and that's the connection so if you're going to blow yeah. anything out that's going to blow and you're not going to lose your dart you're not going to you know send a shockwave down your dart as well as to be able to retain it and you can do that an overshaft mechanism with a lot of various darts but you can also do the wadding method with pretty much any four shaft it just gives it a little bit of cushion and eliminates that like heating and pressure yeah having that like it's like a sleeve pretty much fits yep. over and connects the two the two shafts um, that's a really good way to connect, um, pieces, especially if you use like a, um, cane. Yeah. A, a cane, cane dart or, um, they did it commonly, I think with Phragmites cause it's so reed in the like great basin cause it's so, uh, fragile. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's stronger if you put that sleeve over to connect the, the shafts, but, um, it works really well with a beveled connection, what you call like a scarf joint where you have. That your two shafts, the the fore shaft and the main shaft, or whatever parts of the shaft that you're joining, are beveled in opposite ways, and they just fit up against each other. And then you have that sleeve over them, holds it in place. Yeah, and that creates this this uh, setup where you can actually have a dart that you can take apart into multiple pieces. Right on. Uh, and those are really that's a really common uh, joinery technique in the old world going way back but definitely during like the magdalenian period mm-hmm. where they're primarily hunting reindeer and they're using the atletal and uh, you see that with these osseous tips uh, like antler reindeer antler is really good yeah. they use red deer antler they use bone um they they often use utilize that scarf joint technique and you see that carry over across into the new world at the end of the pleistocene with these Clovis, what people often call Clovis bone rods. Mm. And at least some of those Clovis bone rods are those Segei points that yeah. they were using in, uh, in Europe for sure as well. So they, they came from Europe all the way across to, uh, right on. all the way across Siberia into the new world. Yeah. Some of those, some of those techniques, you know, they're very easy to, to replicate and reproduce with like modern tools. And I think yeah. that's one of my, my approaches is if I can't, have to craft it from using bone or stone i try to avoid it because it yeah it comes down to a couple of different things like a personal way i call it honoring the hunt i feel like um if i can create things from the landscape and then turn around and, and yeah. take game with it it's, it's a way to honor that hunt to do it on foot sometimes barefoot with moccasins sandals and a breech cloth and that's kind sweet of a little bit more <laughs> you know my my style but you know, yeah. the, the things that I create and the stone tools like you're speaking of, some, I mean, yeah. if people would embrace our some of our older ways, they would realize that their hunting capabilities would just, I personally believe, would go up like tenfold. Just, I agree. It's amazing. One sm- small stone point will do to the side of an animal. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, what we what we often miss, what hunters often miss, if there's any hunters listening, is hunting is one of those things, one of those aspects of our culture that doesn't necessarily improve with modernity. <laughs> you know, <laughs> very true. Like yeah. add on better and better technology, and it gets easier and easier. And the animal, I mean. I, we also have to consider what the experiences of the animals of being hunted with, you know, these kind of firearms versus, Mm -hmm. um, having predators that you can actually see and then get away from. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily better with, with better technology. I don't cover myself in deer urine or (laughs) anything like that. My grandfather probably smoked a Marlboro red wearing the same shirt you're wearing when he was hunting and did perfectly fine, you know? So, What's the name of your uh, school down in Texas where you hunt these hogs without models? So I run a school and travel throughout. So I call it uh, Paleo Tracks Survival. Paleo so Tracks Survival. It's kind of the old way. The old way of survival, thrival. It's really uh, wilderness self-reliance school. And it's, you know, it's online, um, paleotracksurvival.com. And it's, it's a pretty good school. I run a uh, variety of classes. Most of them are August, September, mm-hmm. um, over hunting seasons. Those are the hunter gatherer classes. And then I do a, a stone tool, uh, technologies class where, um, it's three days. I take, uh, people and I give them a variety of stone tools. Cause in order to truly understand how to make stone tools, you have to use them first. Right. You have to understand how you hold them, how you manipulate them, how a raw flake cuts into flesh, how you hold the chopper, how you utilize a scraper to process hide. So we use a lot of tools up front and then we spend the next day and a half creating some very baseline stone toolkits. And then we go out into the bush and we put those, those kits to work to make simple shelters, fire kits, harvest some game and, uh, Live, live how we're supposed to. Cool. <laughs> yeah. We could write a grant to send 15 archaeologists to this school to <laughs> do a, to a, a gang atlatl hunt. Yeah. Friends and family discount. I'll hook you up. No worries. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the, the atlatl hunts are typically um, down in Texas. So uh-huh. you hunt invasive species. Like here we hunt coyotes. Right. That's our invasive. So that's one you can hunt with an atlatl. And I've taken those out of yeah. my backyard with, with atlatls and bows and they're hogs. good hogs hogs are huge people want to get rid of hogs real bad so you can hunt them all year oh round. yeah that's that's the easiest i love hunting hogs because they'll get you they'll come at you it's like you truly have to hunt it you can't you always want to hunt close to a tree in case it does come at you you can like <laughs> grab that branch and drop your kit and hold on but uh if you're if you're a good shot and there's enough of you like one of the last groups i brought out there was about seven of us and um we walked high and low. We looked everywhere around. We could hear them in the distance, but they were just smarter than us. And eventually we started spreading out and we took a couple turtles and ate turtle eggs, which was good too. I like turtles. <laughs> yeah. Boil them out in their own shell. They burn out, but it's good eating. What's the average age of people that, that take classes in your school? Yeah. Um, I'd say anywhere 18 to 65. Really? All sorts of ages, family groups, um, corporate events, executives will come out and they'll say i want to i want to walk wild and i say well, let's start walking um people <laughs> from canada uk um weather scientists uh people that work for NOAA, um, moms dads husbands wives anybody everybody in because my school is not necessarily about um it is about survival but it's about self-reliance in the woods that's right. that's the goal and my idea of that self-reliance is knowing more, caring less, and everything already exists out in the bush. And some of the easiest tools you can create can be a simple stone flake is a perfect example of a yeah. beautiful knife. You okay. know? Um, what is like the average like skill level of the people? Like, have they ever been out in the woods before? Or do they kind of know what they're doing? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, all, all skill levels. Most people that want to do like a three-day, they're, they're relatively new. Some folks that want to go out for 10, even 21 days, they've run through a couple courses, um, they've maybe crafted their own bow and they want to kind of put themselves to the test with some, some mentorship and guidance and some, some instruction along the way. But I've had folks come out for 10 days, uh, that know absolutely nothing. And the only gear requirements I have is a blade, a blanket and a bottle. Those are hmm. the three hardest things to replicate in the bush. And then everything else comes from that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Creating a knife, creating a blanket and creating something to boil water in is hard to do. It's doable. You can do burn bowls and make clay pots and a variety of things, but firing clays, you know, is that there's an art form to it, you know, and then hand sifting all of your clay and pulling out all your particulates. It's, 
and getting your temps right. And I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of ages that go to it. A lot of people are just wanting to experience, um, something kind of a rewilding, if you will. And I'm happy to be part of their journey. Yeah. Um, I had a question that's kind of not related to, or I guess it is related to that, but if there's something, so I've never, you know, I didn't live in the Paleolithic and I don't, I don't go outside that deep in the woods that too much, but like, what is something about ancient humans that like, we might not know? Like, what's something you found out through doing all this, like about ancient people, like the way they make tools, how they are like living in the woods. Like, have you come up with like a yeah, cool? I think they were probably some of the best problem solvers. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Cause there's so many things we, we just take for granted the clothes on our back, but to know the, the, the proper methods to tan a hide yeah. proportionally to fats, Mm-hmm. I mean, how many years that could have taken or it could have taken one lady who spilled something at one point and was like, oh, this is amazing. Or yeah. how um, like the archer's paradox on a bow, how that arrow bends around the bow. And then let, I mean, there's so many of those sort of things that problem solving that um, I, modern people, we are very creative in different forms. Right. But those early forms of creativity, I'm just completely I like to experience it sometimes like I don't know everything. I know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. And. Sometimes I'll be out in the bush and something will come to me. I'm like, oh, is this, yeah. is this brand new? Did I just think of this? Yeah. Probably not. But somebody else, uh, you know, a couple thousand years ago was sitting in that same spot and saying, holy cow, I just thought of this. And now it's changed my life. <laughs> yeah. So I really, I just, yeah, without a doubt, Dope. super creative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of things that you said there um, that made me thought first is uh, hide tanning. And then second, when you're making this equipment, I found time and time again that I, I've, you know, my experience trying to make atlatl darts, trying to flint nap, uh, trying to make fire. Um, when you start looking at museum collections, things that have come out of the archeological record, you look at it and it just looks familiar. Yeah. You look at it and you're like, I did that. I know why exactly why they made the shaft like with that kind of taper to it or made the main shaft in that way. And I understand the process that it took to make that. Um, and you know, the, the amount of effort and what kind of tools you would have to do use to reproduce that. Whereas if you don't have that experience, uh, trying to replicate artifacts or even like experiment on your own, like you're saying, mm-hmm. it's, it's just so much harder to interpret what you're seeing, uh, from the archeological record. Sure. And you see tons in the literature of mis- misinterpretations, Absolutely. misrepresentations and people just not it's just very clear when people don't have that experience for sure. And, uh, they're trying to interpret artifacts. So, um, so for an archeo from an archeological perspective, it's, it's an invaluable tool. Absolutely. Um, and then to come back to hide tanning, this is, this is really nice work. <laughs> Thanks. I've uh, <laughs> done some hide tanning. I've never tanned a, a hair on deer hide. This is very yeah. soft, but like very pliable for yeah. a, a hair on hide. It is a science project. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It is, uh, you have to do everything just right if you don't want to make a huge amount of work for yourself. Absolutely. Um, but yet there's so many different ways to go about doing mm, it. Absolutely. But if you actually want to produce a high that's of high quality, what you better do is find somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And follow their instructions to the T. Absolutely. So, um, so that is one, I, that's like a really good example of what you're talking about. One, one way in which, um, people, it's very clear how intelligent and clever they were and how, what good problem solvers yeah. they were. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's just beautiful. I'm really. just kind of viewers, I'm asking if there have any questions for Donnie. Sure. Any questions? Is this, uh, this brain tan? Brain tan, Yeah. Unfortunately, I have a, a nice relationship with a lady named Teresa Camper, and she's probably one of the world's best mm. um, high tanners. She, her PhD, her doctorate is just in ancient methodologies. For so she is the master. Like I'll call her up and be like, "Quick question, <laughs> <laughs> nice. what do I got to do?" And knowing that is yeah. invaluable, and then being sure that I can share that same sort of stuff. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a wonderful resource to have as somebody who's um, really put a lot of effort into high tanning. And there are people, this, this is what they've, they've done yeah. for their life, is just trying to understand different ways of high tanning. 
Yeah, for sure. So just for our <laughs> listeners real quick, we're interviewing uh, Donnie Dust, who is a uh, primitive survival expert. We also have uh, my colleague, uh, Devin Pettigrew, who's a PhD student in ancient weapons technology. So we're doing a live stream on Instagram, and uh, we're also recording this um, for our podcast. So if anyone uh, who's on Instagram have any questions for Donnie, please just drop them and we'll read it to him and we'll see what he has to answer. He's a really cool guy. Um, <laughs> he's been great. This has been so much fun. <laughs> and it's great having Devin here because like, you guys can really go back yeah. down because like, this is the way outside my wheelhouse. I'm yeah. just like, wow, these are some cool skins and some cool some cool tech. Like I haven't seen a, a ads before that's been redone and I mean, and your otter skin uh, quiver quiver is nuts. Oh, thanks. Like that's I'm trying to get my hands on some from some otter right now, but uh, yeah, just yeah, like this is an Ishii style quiver, right? Similar, yeah. yeah similar. Just you sew his face shut, you keep the tail, and then you yep. pa- you pack some some pine pitch in case you got to repair anything. You just heat it and smear it, so you have your own repair kit there for anything. And, ah, cool. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's like probably several years old. Just like uh, Ishii's quiver. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing is it's waterproof and depending on the number of arrows you put in there, it could be pretty darn quiet, you yeah. know? So whether you're, you're hand packing them, two on the bow, two inside the quiver, or however you go about doing it. But uh, yeah, it's, um, it's really, I mean, if you can case skin something yeah. like an otter or in case skinning is where you basically remove the hide like a sock and, um, so the mouth shut and away you go. I mean, I've the last bear I took, I kept his pads on, his claws in, nose, eyelids, ears, after you remove the cartilage. Um, most of the things I like to case skin because people enjoy them and, you know, you can turn them into a variety yeah. of things, pouches, quivers, so on and so forth. So Question. Uh, Luke Fraser asks, how do I start to learn primitive skills? Yeah. So you have the school. <laughs> yeah. So Luke, you can definitely... Uh, you can go to paleotracksurvival.com and um, I have a variety of courses run there. But uh, the best thing to do is just get out in the bush um, and just start experimenting, start playing around, figure out what's there. And depending where you're at geographically, there has been a culture that has existed there. Yeah. They are the pioneers for understanding how that environment works, how to thrive within that environment. So pick up books, read it. I grew up in an era where they're there wasn't YouTube. You right. had to reach out to experts. You had to read books and be curious. Yeah. And that has led me down a pathway of just some amazing experiences. So be curious, get outside, read a whole bunch of books. On my uh, website, I, ha- I list out tons of books that are in uh, ancestral skills, first skills, um, you name it, it's there. So yeah, check it out. How many books have you published? Uh, I published uh, one book called Scavenger. That's a primal approach to lifestyle change. It's uh, focusing on a couple of methodologies to like make oneself better. And then I have another book coming out called Earth Roamer. Um, and that goes into how I go out in the bush for extended periods of time and uh, place to place and no real plans, just letting curiosity guide me and some of my fundamentals and principles. And I have a third book I'm working on called Lithic Survival. And Lithic Survival is taking survival skills and uh, defined lithic arts and incorporating them together. So the old analogy, what would you do if you didn't have a knife in a survival situation? This is really going into creating some of those first tools and then showing you how to uh, use those tools in a variety of situations. Because using a, a stone flake is not the same as using a knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, they they yeah. work in very ways. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think I, that's come up before where, uh, you know, for example, I was on an internet forum. Internet forums are also good uh, resources in addition to books, but... Uh, that's that's like I grew up in the area yeah. era of internet forums, early ones. Um, somebody was talking about how Ishii made his bow and said, "Oh, I just assumed he would have used his knife." For <laughs> no, stone knives are not great for yeah, right? <laughs> whittling wood. Yeah. Um, so they function in different ways, totally different ways. I would just add to that, like at some point, you just have to try. Yeah. Like what you're saying. Um, this comes up for me with uh, hunting. People talk about hunting with the bow and arrow and how challenging it is. And mm. well, you have to start with like a compound bow and then gradually. No, just just pick up a wood bow and just try. Yeah. yeah. Like at some point, you just have to go back in your backyard, shoot some arrows. And then when hunting season rolls around, if you're comfortable enough that you can hit the target regularly, go out in the woods and try to hunt. Yeah. And it's that process of con- continually trying quite often failing 
And then going back and looking at the resources, reading the books, reading the things online, it's just that that long term, <laughs> you know, extended. Just keep trying it. Yeah, life's and, journey. Yeah, it's that's how you're going to pick up this kind of these kinds of tools. You said a second ago, like someone has lived in that spot before in history, and they like have lived through it, kind of thing. That that's another cool thing I think about archaeology is like why should we study it and things like that. It, I would have had. If you dropped me in Wyoming last year when I was eight years old, I would have died like immediately. But knowing <laughs> how people lived in the plains for that long, like for tens of thousands of years, just by reading about archaeology and how like what they were eating, how they mm-hmm. built their structures, like you'd have a better chance of surviving there knowing that. Absolutely. And I think that's like super cool. I'm, that's a, I never heard someone say that that way. So that's yeah, a cool right way to on. put it. Yeah, it's a valid point for sure. I'm super stoked. And and Lana, if you keep helping out our guests or the people that follow, we're going to have to start paying you. Uh, yeah, that guy is super stoked. My pleasure. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Um, dude, what time is it? We've been like, this is, time's been flying by. Yeah, no, this is great. Yeah, I guess. We usually just do hour episodes. So what's been the most, because you've been doing this for what, how long? 20 years? About 20 years. Yeah, about 20 years. What was the your worst experience or probably uh, maybe not worst is the, is the right way to put it, but like difficult experience you've had outside the swamp, like just, yeah. Um, so getting sick is always difficult. Really? Um, so, and there's kind of a backstory to some of these, but, uh, for a couple of years, but someone dared me, I couldn't live as a vegan. So I tried it out and did it. <laughs> but one thing it forced me to do was, uh, remove an entire food palette, food, you know, offering from my, from my world and focus on plants. So as you remove one, you can only focus on the other. And through that, I I understood and gained a great deal of knowledge on medicinal plants, tooling plants, resource-based plants. And from that, I've learned a lot about how to treat certain ailments out in the bush. And sometimes I will say some of the stuff that creeps up into my body, whether it's, you know, dysentery or some sort of Gerardia, Cryptosporidium, anything, sometimes the bush just is not the best place and <laughs> getting sick outside is horrible. Like, you know, I'll get a little, not overly graphic, but like, you know, you got the runs. What do you wipe your butt with? It's probably a, a stone or a stick or a handful. You do that 20, 30 times. You're dehydrated. You're trying to rehydrate. You don't feel well. You're not crawling into a nice bed. You're laying on some, some Buffalo robes. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> that's when things become really difficult when you're sick and especially when you're three days out and you're sick and you got to walk back in. Um, being sick in the bush is one of those things that will definitely change your perspective and, uh, you know, force you to increase your, your knowledge on what plants work. Like yarrow is a great plant out here that works exceptionally well. Um, there's so many plants that offer a little bit of something. And once you know those, you feel like you're, you're armed and ready. So, so you went, you went vegan and now yeah. as we were walking up here, yes. kind of in, now you're on an all meat diet. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I'm on my 24th day of a, pure meat diet and that's organ meats, um, all my own hunted meats, some store-bought meats, um, and then just some like um, random meats. So yeah, organ meats, liver, um, I love liver, I love heart, tripe, um, lots of fats, so store-bought game fowl, uh, an elk, um, you name it, if I can eat it. And there's no dairy involved, no cheeses, it's just straight meat and I feel great. Probably lost eight or nine pounds. Um, I sleep soundly. Uh, and this is, this is more, uh, of an experiment. This, my entire findings I've been keeping track of financially, my blood pressure, my O2 levels. There's a lot of science going into it because, um, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of information about the cultures that used to eat meat. So you take the Inuit, they're not eating stuff. They might've eat the undigested like grass and stuff from a stomach, but they're not, they're not getting the same sort of veg, you know, vitamins. Yeah. So they did perfectly fine. And there's some papers that I've read had, they have lower blood pressure and all sorts of stuff. So I'm trying to experiment on my own. Um, just this past week, I started eating some of the raw meats to regain some vitamin C um, and just kind of experimenting a lot of bone broths, um, some marrow, things like that. And it's, so I've been keeping track of it all, moods, feelings, weights, energy levels, trying to paint somewhat of a picture to those wanting to experiment with this. This is kind of, you know, how I feel. This is, and I'm, I'm ravenous 99% of the time. Like if, we, <laughs> if you brought a liver in here, we would all be eating it right now. But I just ate my last one yesterday. So, 
yeah. you had said earlier that like the heart is a really important part to eat or yeah. I think something about that. Like what, if you were to live in the wild, like what's the most nutritious thing like you would go for first? Um, probably the easiest thing requires yeah. least amount of calories and effort. So fish can be pretty easy. That's okay. a passive. I can, I can take fish passively. I can set lines and traps and let those work for me while I'm resting. Um, but if I wanted something very nutritious, uh, liver's great. Most animals eat out those organ meats first, right? Mm -hmm. That's what they go for. That's where all the vitamins are packed. So that same sort of theory, that's what I want to eat first. And that yeah. heart is just pure meat. Unfortunately, there's no fats in it. That's the downside. And where do the animals typically go next? They go to the rump. That's where there's a lot of fat and that's where there's a little bit more tenderness, if you will. Um, this is just, you know, what I find. Yeah. So if I was to take game, um, you could eat that liver raw. I uh, start working on that heart, cut off those fat lines, start eating it out. That would definitely be uh, an option. But okay, I mean, technically everything's edible. In yeah. My, in my mind, it's just what happens an hour later might change your, <laughs> change your perspective. Where are you? Uh, Lana wants to know where you're getting your fiber from, if this, from this all meat diet. Yeah. So you will have a different um, bowel movement cycle. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, but I don't believe you really need, I still have regular bowel movements um, without any issues. So I think the fiber is kind of one of those things that we believe we need, but I'm still on the regular. I'm not getting cramps. Um, I just don't need to expel as, as much. The most I've eaten in one day has been like four and a half pounds of meat. And the next day, I just everything was normal. So I don't think we need as much fiber as we think we need. I think we need a lot more fiber because we eat a lot more junk. And that fiber helps get rid of that junk. When you eat clean and you eat very clean meats, uh, you don't need it as much. I'm not a scientist, but that's just what I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's making me think about the Plains Indian diet as well, because it was like almost all meat, and also also the fat. Nomads, Plains the nomads, yeah, okay. So Carlton's people were uh, agriculturalists as yeah. well, but uh, on the Western Plains, uh, pemmican, pemmican, and yeah. it's it's not what a lot of people think, which is like they think it's 50 percent dried berries or something. Berries, like fat, and meat. It's it's the vast majority of it is fat mm. and meat and yeah. the fat from a grass-fed animal like a buffalo or a uh, grass-fed cow actually has that vitamin c in it that they're uh, keratin they're mm. getting that out of the the vegetables the grass that they're eating um and that's you can see that that difference you can see it in the fat it's like this chunky orange fat mm. And so pemmican is, is that melted down that tallow from a grass fed animal mixed with dried shredded meat and occasionally some, some, uh, very small percentage of dried berries, maybe just to give it some flavor, oh, yeah. but they're getting their vitamin C out of the, out of the grass fed animal. And, uh, that's, that's what they're eating. It's like all the time. Are you so, guys part of the tallow eaters of America, the raw fat eaters? No. You should join. Okay. Yeah, it's awesome. I've never heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds great. I just started it. <laughs> no, but like I'm eating, fully on board. <laughs> eating, eating raw animal fat is, um, I think if you go back way on Instagram, I cut out all this stuff and there's just me eating raw fat because one, it's high in calories, those good replacement calories. So you run, run an animal down, you need to replace, you take in those, yeah. those fat calories and um, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I love Duck fat's my favorite. Straight fat, yeah. And I mean, there might be a little bit of bits and pieces of meat on there, but it ain't going to kill you right away. Yeah. Right All away. right. <laughs> I think we're at our hour mark. So, cool. I mean, Donnie, what plug? So, you got a website? Yeah. Um, so, I have my business website, which is paleotracksurvival.com, mm -hmm. um, that discusses a lot of different uh, classes that I offer, whether they're private classes. Uh, some of my calendar classes, as well as uh, you can go to DonnieDust.com. That talks about um, just TV and film involvement, publications, um, you know, different lectures and stuff like that that I'll be providing. And I have a running blog on there and all sorts of topics from picking up after yourself out in the bush to living like a hunter-gatherer. Uh, so, yeah, those are kind of the two sites and those will lead to to a lot of others. But and. Yeah. Uh What's what's the Instagram handle for all? Because that's where we're big on oh, Instagram. Yeah, so yeah can, no worries. Uh, just uh, like check, Donnie does. Think, yeah, it's Donnie does. Let me check real quick. <laughs> um, it, God, I'm horrible. Donnie does. Just Donnie does. Donnie does. <laughs> um, well, and one last question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what is like one piece of advice you'd give to somebody uh, trying to do this or like, that's out there in the woods doing something? Yeah, for sure. Um, I would definitely say, uh, 
your curiosity will lead to your creativity. So as you are walking amongst the wild landscapes of the world and you see things, be curious about them. If you see a cave in the distance, go see what's in it. Um, if you smell something, you hear something, be curious about what it is because it might lead you to a new creative standpoint. And that's creating a tool, creating an experience, creating a relationship, just um, live life to the fullest. And uh, yeah, just be curious, be creative and you get things done. Usually at the end of our show, we ask if we'd ask our uh, guests if they'd like to live their life in ruins again. But yes, would you like to live, uh, you know, if you had to do it all over again, would you like to live it primitively? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that awesome. Was, that's my, that's my shtick. Well, we don't. Yeah, dude, this has been great, Donnie. Thank right you on. so much for coming. I'm so happy you get to come to Boulder and you met up with us. <laughs> so we get to see all your cool stuff. I'm yeah. excited for taking you down to the lab and show us, uh, show you what we got going on. So uh, thank you, everyone. We're out. Yeah. appreciate you guys. Yeah. Indeed. 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 This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.